So follow along with me, if you will. We're going to read from chapter 13, the first 12 verses. This is the word of God. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed there from, from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet named Bargesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Eliamus the sorcerer, for that was his, what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Eliamus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Lord, I pray that you will bless the reading of your word. You tell us that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of your word of God stands forever. Use it to shape us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In his book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis imagines the devil briefing like his, his little demons. And in, in this case, it's one of his nephews whom he refers to as Wormwood. And in briefing Wormwood, he's talking to him about the subtleties and the techniques of tempting people and trying to lead them astray. And in one section, he makes a point to Wormwood saying this. He said, look, your objective is not to make people wicked. I will handle that. Your objective is to make them indifferent. And he says to Wormwood, he says, you know, if, if, the, if the subject should start thinking about anything of importance, anything at all, encourage him to think about his lunch plans and not to worry so much because it could cause indigestion. And the devil gives this instruction to the, his nephew. I, the devil, will always see to it that there are bad people. Your job, my dear Wormwood, is to provide me with people who do not care. The devil is effective in his strategies the spiritual forces that come against us and assault us. We live in a distracted world, in a world where it's hard to even find time to care. I mean, we're really busy, you know, on our phones. Android devices take 93 million selfies per day. Just a few. You may be so distracted that you don't care that much about God because it's your hobbies you're involved in, or your work, or your family. And those are all good things. You may be um, distracted 
to God's ways and his mission of spreading the gospel to make new disciples. You may think that you don't know enough, that uh, I'm too afraid of, I have a fear of rejection or opposition, and I just don't want to deal with that, and I, I like my life comfortable, so why bring in that discomfort into life? And I want you to remember something, that Jesus' own disciples probably had similar objections. Right? I mean, they were scared when Jesus was arrested. They all scattered. They ran for their lives. When he got crucified, they were gone. It was after his resurrection, when on the third day he comes out of the grave and they see him, that they changed from scared and hiding and afraid to filled with courage and saying, this is a game changer. If Jesus says he's going to rise from the dead and does it, then what else do I have to fear? I'll follow him and be part of his mission. I want you to undergo a shift in the way you think. I want you, if you are a follower of Jesus, I want you to think of yourself as a missionary. You think of missionaries as those people that go far, far away places. In terms of what Jesus tells his disciples, he's like, if, if you're a follower of me, then by definition you're a missionary. You're, you're on my mission with me, wherever you are. So I want you to think as missionaries. Uh, God sends people. He sends me and he sends you to accomplish that mission of making new disciples. And when he sends us, he empowers, he equips, and he sets expectations. And I want to talk to you about those three things. First, God empowers people for the mission of making new disciples. One of the things that has been striking us all through the book of Acts is prayer. They are constantly praying. I mean, it's all, you can't barely go without a chapter without it mentioned that the believers gathered together to pray. I mean, in chapter 12... Peter gets put in prison, but it says that the people gathered and prayed for him. In chapter 13, verse 3, what we just read here, it says the church gathered and prayed and fasted and sought the Spirit, and then they laid hands on Barnabas and Paul and sent them out. They prayed. That's what they did. Does prayer work, though, you may wonder? Well, if God can raise the dead, God makes prayer work, too, Right? Yes, it works. God delights to help people. Plus, the other thing that when you pray, the other thing it does is it puts your request at the front of your mind because you're praying for them. You pray for them that day or in the middle of the day or whatever, and you pray for them again the next day. It's something that's on your mind, and it's something that God may give you relief from in terms of not being anxious about, but also may give you focus on in terms of this is something you need to do. And prayer does that. It has a way of God's Spirit keeping it on your mind. But engaging with you and you praying, being part of that. You may think, I don't have any time to pray. I mean, it's, you know, life's busy. I get it. I know. Here's one idea for you. I mean, there's going to be lots of ideas, but here's one idea. One idea is before you ever pick up that cell phone, just make it your rule. I'm going to pray before I touch my phone for the day. For some of you, that means before you get out of bed. For others, that might be like before coffee or right with coffee. It won't be coffee cell phone. It'll be coffee pray cell phone. I, you know, I don't, just set up a time. Make it your time. Okay, I'm just going to pray. And I'm not saying go pray for 30 minutes. I'm just saying stop and pray. Make it a habit of stopping and praying and saying, okay, I need God. I need his help. And I want his spirit to be empowering to me to go about the mission that he has put before me. The other thing about this is being empowered by it. It's not just prayer that is empowering, though it is. It's actually the Spirit that is the agent of empowering you. They are sent by and filled with the Spirit. We see this in verses 2, 4, and 9. Let's put those verses on the screen, if you would. Just notice how frequently, when we read it, it mentions the Holy Spirit. 
They're worshiping the Lord, fasting, and the Holy Spirit says, set them apart. In verse 4, it goes on, and it mentions again the Holy Spirit. The two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 9, again, Paul's speaking, and he's filled with the Holy Spirit, looking straight at Elias, this sorcerer. What is clear is that they are dependent upon, reliant on the Spirit of God for their empowerment and to go about doing their work. Pastor Jack Miller used to, he's deceased now, but he used to um, have some sayings that he was known for. And and I've heard a couple of those sayings. I'm reading a biography of his, um, and um, I found there's another saying I didn't know that he said. But the, the sayings that I was aware of are these, cheer up. You're far worse than you think you are. And he would usually quickly follow that up as people were trying to stumble about figuring, how is that good news that I'm far worse than I thought I was? With the second one, which was, hey, cheer up. God's grace is far greater than you ever imagined it could be. And that's good news. And it's reason to cheer up. The third one, though, that I wasn't aware of is this. Cheer up. God's spirit works in your weakness. Jack, who was a pastor and started, uh, sent missionaries and started a whole mission organization and was a seminary professor and church planner on the West Coast and East Coast, realized at one point that he was not functioning as a Trinitarian. Okay, a Trinitarian is Christians. We say we believe in the Trinity. That is three persons and one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he said he wasn't functioning that way. And what he meant was that he believed in the Father in the Father's sovereign care and reign over all things, and he believed in the Son, and he knew he needed the forgiveness of, of Jesus, his Savior, but he did not ask regularly for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to go about his work, to resist temptation, to go about the mission that was to be done. And so he was functioning with two people of the Trinity, two persons of the Trinity, and practically leaving out the third. And he had to start seeking and asking for help from God by the Spirit of God and his power. And it changed the way he lived, much more dependent on God, much more attuned with God, much more seeing fruit of what God was doing now through his life. And there's many stories he tells of that, which I won't go into now. But I will tell you a different story about needing help and getting help from one who can help you. During the American Revolution, this is a, uh, a story that comes out of the American Revolution. There's a man... Um, riding horseback in civilian clothes. He comes along a uh, garrison of soldiers who are repairing a small defensive barrier, and he notices a man, another soldier, uh, instructing them, directing, giving commands to them in trying to build this, to rebuild this defensive barrier. And he asked the, um, the man who was giving the instructions why he wasn't helping them, and he said, well, sir, I am a corporal. He said, I'm sorry. The stranger dismounted his horse, went down, began to help rebuild the defensive barrier. They completed the work, and then he went to that corporal afterwards, and he said, I'm sorry you did not have the manpower to do what you needed to do. Next time you have this trouble, you come to your commander-in-chief, and I will help you again. And it was George Washington. The point of me telling you the story is because God doesn't send you to do something and then not help you do it. That's what the Holy Spirit is for. Ask for the help. He'll come. He'll get down with you. Help you where you are. He's not going to leave you there. Flailing about and struggling and thinking, am I going to make it? He will meet you in the midst of it. When the task is big, 
you know you need help, so ask for it. When the task is small, you might think, I got this under control. But maybe you don't. Ask for help. Always rely on God. Maybe right now, take a moment and just write down one thing. Write down one thing that you need help with from God. What is that? Now take another moment and write down a second thing, because I'm guessing you didn't do this with the first one. Write down a person that you want to talk to Jesus about that you need help to do that. Think, who can I talk to? Because Jesus is great. It's the best news ever. Who do you need help in talking to? So, we're empowered for the mission, but we're also equipped for the mission to make uh, new disciples, followers of Jesus. I want you to notice a few things here. Is In verse 1, right away, we see that this church is well-equipped, right? They have prophets and teachers, plural. This is the church in Antioch, not in Jerusalem. This is north, north of Israel, um, north of Lebanon, up north, up that way, right? Near, um, up kind of near Syria up there. And so Antioch becomes a center um, of the church in the early days in Acts. It's, I think it was the third largest uh, uh, Roman outpost and third largest city of the empire. Um, and so Antioch is a thriving place, but it's a place where there's prophets and teachers, plural. Okay, it hasn't, they haven't been around that long, but they've already got people who are prophets and teachers who have been gifted by God and equipped and trained to speak the word of God. All kinds of people were mentioned. Barnabas is mentioned, right? We know he's Jewish. Then we're told about Simeon, who is African, and then a man from Cyrene. Cyrene's on the North African coast of Libya, in Libya, right? And then Menaean, who's uh, a follower or had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. So he's grown up in a political household, and he's converted and become a, a teacher in Antioch. And then, of course, you have Saul, who is a Jew, but from modern-day Turkey. Okay? You have people from all over the Mediterranean area who have come to Antioch, and they are, they are past their uh, prophets and teachers. And they're teaching and instructing people in the word of God. They've been equipped to do that. And I want you to f- see Barnabas and the work of Barnabas does. Barnabas plays a critical role in that. He's an equipper. He's an encourager. He's telling people, like, look, we can do this. Like, come on. That's what he does. When others are afraid of Saul, what does he do? Let's look. Chapter 11, we're going to go back, verses 25 and 26. Can we put those on the screen? It says, Then Barnabas went to Tarsus, that's Saul's hometown in, in Asia Minor, to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Now, remember what Barnabas has to do when he goes to get Saul. Saul's the one who's been persecuting the church, opposing it, kills Stephen, right? Putting people in jail, becomes a Christian, and and everybody's like, yeah, I don't know about that. I don't know if we can trust this guy or not. So he kind of goes off on his own into the wilderness for a while, and Barnabas says, you know what? We need to go find this guy. And Barnabas sets out and says, I'm going to go find him. And he brings him back. He says, okay, let's start this thing. Let's do this. And so that's what he does. He encourages him. Can you imagine how Saul felt when Barnabas shows up? Hey, Saul, 
yeah, Barnabas here. You killed some of my friends. But God's got a mission for us. Let's go. You're in it. Me? Really? I mean, I know God said I was going to be, but you really want me in it? Because I kind of thought I was on my own. Like, what an encouragement that would be. And he says, let's go. Maybe take a moment right now and think of someone that you know who needs encouragement. Write that name down. Who needs encouragement? Who can I reach out to to encourage? Maybe they failed you. Maybe they're hurting. Maybe they're discouraged. Maybe they're new to being a Christian. Maybe they're trying to figure out if they want to be a Christian. But who needs encouragement? Who can you reach out to to be an encourager to? The other thing in being equipped that happens here is, yes, they, we know they're equipped because there was prophets and teachers. We see Barnabas actually equipping in and encouraging. But the other part of that is they're willing to give over leadership to others. I mean, I mean did you notice that? They give over leadership to others. I mean, we're told that because right at the beginning of, of uh, chapter 13, we see all these people, these prophets and teachers all gathered, and they send out Barnabas and Paul, probably two of their best, because they know they have other prophets and teachers that are equipped, and they're going to lead now. And so they send out Barnabas and Paul on a missionary journey. But notice, too, what happens in this relationship between Barnabas and Saul. Um, this is kind of in the text, but let me just point it out to you. It's in verses 2 and 7 and then 13 and 42. So let's put those slides on, verse 2 and 7. Notice what's happening here. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. I want you to notice that. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, okay? Go to the next one, verse 7. Who was it? And then so, right, we're talking about Elimus here, but notice again, the proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for who? Barnabas and Saul. Okay, great. Now we go to verse 13. Notice what happens here. From Paphos, okay, this is after what we read. So they went out and they started their journey and they met Elimus. They're going to the next place. And as they go to the next place, it says Paul and his companions sailed to Perga. So now Saul's name has been changed to Paul, which Jesus said he would do, right? But Luke is now officially switching names and saying, okay, we're not calling him Saul anymore. We're calling him Paul, his new name, okay? Saul's very Jewish. Paul is more Greek and Roman, and he's going on this mission to them. And so his new name is Paul, and Paul takes the first place. Go to that last uh, verse there, 42. Notice again now, at the end of chapter 13, and now it's Paul and Barnabas we're leaving. Luke has made this shift from Barnabas and Saul to Paul and Barnabas. And he's signaling that, saying, Barnabas went and got Saul and trained and encouraged and equipped him. And God prepared him and equipped him, no doubt. But there's this transition now for new leadership. And Paul is coming up, and Luke's going to write a lot about Paul's journeys, saying here's a new leader that has been brought forth. Because that's what God's Spirit does. He equips people for mission, making new disciples. We're always looking for and in need of new leaders. We could really use you. Yeah, you, to be a leader. Like, maybe you can lead a new community group. We could really use, start some new community groups. We have a lot of new people in the church in the last year. And our community groups are places where people meet, they get together, and they develop friendships. They learn something from God's Word or maybe a book that they're reading about Christianity or about whatever it may be, and right, how to help them maybe parent or how to, whatever it is, right? But they're doing this together, and then they're also serving together and trying to make a difference and be aware of their neighbors and help out and Maybe they contribute for a day and they help do setup around the church or something or whatever it is. 
we could use leaders for groups like that. We really could. So just talk to Brian about it. He's right there. You've seen him all day. Like, that's the thing. He's like, I'm always looking for leaders. We need leaders. We could use leaders to help with jobs for life, I think, right? Tom Creel's leading that and helping out down at the real life house and stuff. So Tom's over there, sitting back there in that area. Talk to him if you want to help with jobs for life. Find out more about it, mentoring people in a, in a, a time-limited duration, but really pouring into their lives. That's a big thing. We need each of you to learn to share your faith with others. I'm going to start in the next few weeks here, I'm going to start a Sunday school class um, on, on that, on sharing your faith. I guess the point I'm getting to is, since the Spirit of God equips people to be a part of the mission of making new disciples, you are a part of that. You all have a role in it. Now, you may have different gifts in it, but you all have a role in it. And everybody has to be a part of it and use their gifts because all those parts matter. Dwight L. Moody was a, I think he was 19th century, maybe 20th century, 1900s, um, pastor in Chicago. So he wasn't a pastor, he was an evangelist, but um, he's pretty well known. But he told this story one time that a man told him about crossing the Atlantic uh, in a ship and uh, the man was terribly seasick, confined to his room, couldn't do anything. But here's the call come over the, over the sound system on the ship, man overboard. But he's like, I can't even get out of bed to go do anything to help. Man overboard. He's like, okay, the least I can do is probably get up and take my lantern and put it in the portal of, of my, uh, in my window there, which he does. The next day he learns that the person who was rescued said, I was going down, I think it was my last time, and somebody put a light in their portal, and it shone on my hand, and the man in the lifeboat saw my hand going down and grabbed me and rescued me. The point is, everybody's got a job. God will use you in some way, whatever that is. It might be putting the light in the portal. I mean, Jesus said, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Let me get to the final point here and wrap this up. So not only are we empowered and equipped for the mission, but we are given expected outcomes of the mission. And it might seem like, oh, this is great. This is going to be happy and glorious with no problems. Nope, sorry to disappoint you. You should expect opposition. Paul comes and he goes, right? He and Barnabas get there and they meet Elimus, the sorcerer who's against them. And he's like, there's opposition. It happens again and again and again. Every place they go, there's opposition to what they're doing. You should expect opposition. Elimus was opposed. Why was Elimus opposed? Because Elimus was going to lose power. He was, he was the sorcerer in the town. He was like, man, I'm the one that's got the power. People come to me. But if his, if his friend and his boss, this other guy here who he's working with, suddenly becomes a Christian and says, now Jesus has the power, then Elimus is smart enough to read the handwriting on the wall and goes, shoot means I'm getting knocked down in my status. I don't have the power anymore. It was costly to him. It was going to hurt. It was going to change him. And so he was opposed to it. He didn't like it. It was going to affect his status and his security. The truth is this. The gospel is offensive. It is. It tells us how bad we are. Cheer up. You're worse than you think. That's the truth. Right? The truth is there is a judgment day. Jesus spoke of it when we almost give an account before God. Right? And, and what are you going to do? I mean, the good news is Jesus is, gonna, is not going to tolerate evil forever. Heaven will not have evil in it. 
It'll be gone. Are you part of the evil? Are you accepted by Jesus? That's the judgment day. Do you know that? The gospel's offensive. It tells you you need help, that you're not good enough on your own, and you desperately need God. And that's good news when you realize it. So it's offensive in that way, right? It will create an offense. It doesn't mean you need to be a jerk about it. It doesn't mean you should, you should be mean about it or unkind. But the truth can be offensive. But the other part is you should expect conversions. You should expect God to do work in people's lives. I mean, we see this again and again throughout the book of Acts. And we saw even in the last two chapters where the word of God flourished and spread. I think we have a slide for that too with chapter 12, verse 24. We didn't read this today, but the end of chapter 12 says, but the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Guess what? When you get to the end of chapter 13 and verse 49, it says, the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. Right? There's success, right? It does go out. Yes, there's opposition, but yes, there's people that believe and there's conversion. I mean, that's amazing because the church grew rapidly and spread throughout the entire Mediterranean world, even though it had little going for it, humanly speaking. I mean, up until this point, it had very little money, very few proven leaders. Remember, the disciples had scattered. Now they're kind of mobilizing and coming together. No great technological tools for advancing uh, them rapidly, other than the Roman roadway system, and quite a bit of opposition, and yet it spreads like wildfire. When we're praying and asking God for that, that's what we should expect. I need to wrap up here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap up by sharing with you a story that's also a prayer request. Um, it's from some missionaries that we support in Ukraine. And our church has supported them for a long time. They are not American. They are Ukrainian. They live there, but they are church planters and missionaries in Ukraine. They sent a letter to us a little over a week ago. Um, And I'll read, I've redacted some of it here, but I'll read part of it to you. It says this, We have lived under this growing threat of massive Russian invasion for three months now. Of course, the war with Russia is for eight years in eastern Ukraine. But these last few days have been extra stressful as are indicators that attack is very close. We have made the decision that our place is here with our people. We are not leaving Ukraine. All the stress and anxiety makes people more open to the gospel. And we see God is using this difficult situation to bring Ukrainians to himself. We are storing food and supplies for the time we might need to be helping people in the worst case scenario. We have a church one of, not the one they're in, but one of their churches that they started that is one mile away from the current front lines in eastern Ukraine. Please pray for safety of our staff and their families and, of course, for peace. Our personal biggest concern is for our daughter as she is in her eighth month of pregnancy. We know it's all in God's hands, but I can honestly say that this time it's really scary. If we have to evacuate to the countryside, we will have to walk 15 hours since roads will be a parking lot with everyone trying to get out. When she says that it's really scary, just for context, they were here in our church about eight years ago, and, um, and she spoke of um, them going into eastern Ukraine at the time of the invasion in the midst of war to take supplies to Christians and help out. So they're used to going in and going through checkpoints and going in with armor and being under fire to help out. And, and this time they're scared too because there may be more of that that may spread. They don't know. 
Then she ends and says this, we sure pray and hope none of these plans will have to be set in motion. We pray for her husband and um, their son-in-law not to be drafted into the army, but right now our government passed a law that they could be drafted and all women under 60 have to also register with the military office for possible draft. A lot of uncertainties here, but we keep living our lives as normal as possible, grateful to God for every day. So I want us to, when I end here, to pray, to pray for them, but also for that to say, you know what? They're Ukrainians and they're missionaries in Ukraine. What I'm saying to you is, you're missionaries right here. You're empowered. You're equipped. And you know some of the expected outcomes. Be part of the mission. Let's pray, and I'll pray for our missionaries. Lord, I do pray for our missionaries in Ukraine, and I pray for each of us sitting here that we will all see ourselves as missionaries. And I pray that you will help us to be bold and be friendly and be willing to talk to people about Jesus. Lord, help us to realize it's not our job to beat people over the head and change them, but to befriend, to pray for, to answer questions. Lord, I pray for the missionaries in Ukraine. I pray that you will watch over them and protect them, that you would give them safety. But more than that, even as they have asked, I pray that you will make the gospel go forward in Ukraine, that many people in this situation will turn to you, Lord, and believe. I pray that they will be able to minister to people well with food and supplies. And we pray that the worst-case scenario does not happen. We pray that there is peace. So, Lord, be with the leaders of countries that are trying to manage this situation and de-escalate it. We pray that that would happen. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.